0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this
1: juicy gem of a detour. Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. Oh, so what'd you find?
2: Hey, okay. Yeah, so here it is. Um, New York Herald Tribune, Tuesday, August 7th, 1945. Oh my God. My producer Bishop and I were looking over an old newspaper headline from the morning after the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And I could suddenly imagine what it was like to be reading this news for the first time. The front page was like a science fiction horror story come true. The headline says in these enormous inky letters, Atomic bomb revolutionizes war. Hits Japan like 20,000 tons of TNT. And the line below it says, Secret of nature solved. Reading back through the news story, the parts that struck me most were actually the quotes from President Truman. For some reason, I was surprised by how proud he sounded that America had mastered this really devastating atomic power. Like, here, he said, the bomb has added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction on the enemy.
3: It It is is an an atomic atomic
2: bomb. bomb. It It is is a harnessing of the basic basic
0: power power of of
2: the universe.
0: The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed. We have spent more than two billion dollars on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. We are now prepared to destroy, more rapidly and completely, every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. They may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth.
2: The dropping of a nuclear bomb brought an end to World War II, but it was also the start of a new era of trauma across the earth. So here's the story I'm going to lay out for you. How that trauma, that darkness, in its own twisted way, opened Americans' imaginations. Previously unfathomable scientific possibilities were now seriously on the table. A nuclear apocalypse, alien invasions, even a journey to the moon. I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post, and this is Moonrise.
0: For many years, a lot of us have been interested in considering the possibilities of meeting other life forms, other intelligent beings from other stars. Now, if there is life out there, some form of life... what to do.
2: When America dropped the atom bomb on Japan in 1945, it set off a nuclear arms race. So instead of life inching back to normal after the war, people around the world had to confront an entirely new set of existential fears. They now had to worry that the entire planet was on the verge of annihilation. The Soviet Union and the United States Escalated their development of nuclear weapons. Each one acted, and that egged on the other. After the U.S. detonated the atomic bomb, in 1949, the Soviet Union successfully tested its own atomic bomb. With the help of nuclear scientists, it had snatched from Nazi
0: Germany. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia had the atom secret caused state departments all over the world to stir uneasily.
2: In response, America built an even more devastating weapon, the hydrogen bomb. The U.S. tested this hydrogen bomb in 1952 on an uninhabited island in the Pacific. And when it set it off, poof, just like that, the bomb created a fireball two miles wide and 700 times more powerful than the atom bomb in Japan. In a matter of seconds, the entire island vaporized. Vaporized. It completely disappeared and in its place, all that was left was an underwater crater hundreds of feet deep. Not long after, the Soviets announced they detonated their own hydrogen bomb. It felt like the world was marching toward its own death. And if you lived in America, you suddenly worried that the rain of ruin that America had set upon Japan might soon crash back down on you. If the Soviet Union dropped
0: a hydrogen bomb
2: on Laurel, Maryland. That's a suburb where the National Security Agency is based.
0: The outblast from that mega weapon would reach the Baltimore Beltway and the Washington, D.C. Beltway.
2: A radius of about 20 miles.
0: It's a monstrous weapon, and we still have them. And they're very accurate.
2: This is Professor Howard McCurdy, author of Space and the American Imagination.
0: For 500 years, we were separated from Europe and the steppes of Russia. They couldn't reach us because of the barrier that the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean provided for a sanctuary on the North American continent. It was as if we were on the moon or Mars. That all disappeared. And I think that that was a great shock to Americans and a source of incredible anxiety.
2: In the decade following World War II, families built bomb shelters in their yards. Schools practiced air raid drills and constantly trained students to duck and cover in case there was a sudden nuclear attack.
0: He
1: knew
0: just what to do he duck and cover Duck and cover Paul and Patty know this And they're always ready to take care of themselves Here they are on their way to school on a beautiful spring day But no matter where they go or what they do They always try to remember what to do If the atom bomb explodes right then It's a bomb, duck and cover all covered the back of his head so that he wouldn't be burned. And Patty covered herself with a coat she was carrying. Yes, we must all get ready now so we know how to save ourselves if the atomic bomb ever explodes near us. If you do not know just what to do, ask your teacher when this film is over. Discuss what you could do in different places if a bomb explodes. Older people will help us as they always do. There might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then, you're on your own.
2: The landscape of the American mind was riddled with existential nightmares. And those nightmares kept getting worse. So what happens when a society is boiling with all that fear? Sometimes, we look for diversions. Other times, we look for deeper understanding. In science fiction, America found both. After World War II, there was a spike in interest in sci-fi and atomic disaster tales.
1: That particular type of fear gets played out, I think, in a lot of ways in pop culture.
2: I've found that if we want to understand America's deepest worries at any given point in time, what's really revealing is to look at its horror stories.
1: Yes, when you look at a lot of science fiction movies made right after World War II, you see reflected in these concern about nuclear warfare.
2: This is Roger Launius, former chief historian for NASA and for the Air and Space Museum.
1: The Day the Earth Stood Still is a terrific example of this, where you've got a flying saucer that literally lands on the ellipse in Washington, D.C., where uh, an extraterrestrial comes out and he's got a big robot with him. There's a fear that, that death is coming from the sky. And so, The public is sort of spring-loaded to look at these things and and fear them and have a terror associated with them.
2: Americans are increasingly afraid of death from above. So in the form of nuclear weapons, bombs, ballistic missiles. But interestingly, aliens become sort of a pop culture stand-in for those nightmares. They represent something foreign and dangerous that descends from the sky
0: program you are about to hear is largely fiction, science fiction.
2: Now, of course, John Campbell's science fiction magazine, Astounding, played a hand in forging that link.
0: We make no guarantees, however, how long it will remain fiction. Exploring
1: tomorrow. Tonight, based on a famous story by Theodore Sturgeon. In
2: 1951, Campbell's story, Who Goes There?, about the sheep shifting alien became one of the first big screen horror hits. In its movie form, it was called The Thing. Astounding Magazine had launched this new science fiction genre that blended reality and nightmare in this powerful way that rippled through American culture. It made its way into shows like Space Patrol and The Man from Planet X.
1: Up and down,
0: up and down. Something monstrous. Monster in size, sir, making lunatic dashes toward us. At collision speeds, then skipping away at the
2: But it wasn't just radio and magazines, entertainment, where these fears about nuclear war were manifesting themselves people began to think they were seeing aliens and UFOs in real life. They were anxieties unique to this modern era.
0: Carl Sagan wrote that the flying saucer and the alien abduction movements were to the 20th century and its nuclear age what concern about demons and plagues to people who lived in medieval times they were anxious about that. And so they, they imagined these things as a somehow functioning of the human brain.
2: This is Howard McCurdy again.
0: And as a result of that anxiety, various cult movements started up and people began to imagine visitations by demons and witches. And Sagan said the same thing happened with the flying saucer movement. So here we are in the heart of the Cold War and ever, all of a sudden everybody is seeing flying saucers. There
1: was a bright blue light, like a settling torch. Uh,
0: it had a large body and an appearance of Our purpose off. is to inform and the public the only of the light reality of, of UFOs or Earth unidentified flying objects object of some sort, and such as I've never seen before. I cannot stress how much people were terrified by the thought we could be under nuclear attack.
2: UFO sightings spiked at this time. And that was largely because sci-fi stories and Cold War fears sent Americans' imaginations into overdrive. But Roger Lonius said there were also some other very real reasons people started reporting UFO sightings.
1: The, The UFO phenomenon, I think it's very closely tied to the Cold War. That is to say,
2: there were
1: actually more unidentified
2: flying objects in the air. The U.S. government conducted a number of secret tests and military programs after World War II. And the most famous one of those that involved a UFO was in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. It started when a rancher found some strange debris in the desert.
1: He characterizes it as some metal things and some stuff that's pretty light, almost bamboo-like.
2: And so he brought it to the sheriff's office, but he didn't make
1: too much of it. But the local radio station did. They said, oh, you know, the sheriff found this. Thing. The sheriff's got this stuff and it looks weird. And they, the sheriff called the local Air Force Base. And they sent somebody out to pick it up. And they picked it up and, of course, then they took it somewhere else and wouldn't anybody else see it.
2: This is where paranoid imaginations kick into high gear.
1: And eventually uh, that that whole Roswell story of a crashed flying saucer and extraterrestrial bodies that were recovered from it and alien autopsy and all that stuff is sort of blown up.
2: So there's all this public hysteria and the FBI sends an agent to investigate. I looked up the memo that the agent sent back to the Bureau. It's this one-page memo, but it's the most read item in the FBI public fault. It has millions of downloads and views, which tells us something about how that paranoia around aliens still lingers. But anyway, in this memo... The agent describes how a bunch of locals started claiming they had seen huge flying saucer discs and these bodies shrouded in metallic cloth. But then he concludes the memo by saying that this information was clearly made up and the FBI didn't need to look into it any further. Now here's why he said that. The government was already pretty sure it knew exactly what had happened.
1: The reality was what the rancher found was the remains of a balloon that um, was developed as a part of the Project Mogul effort.
2: The U.S. wanted to be able to tell if the Soviets detonated a nuclear weapon. So they developed a bunch of balloons with these nuclear sensors.
1: And they had launched dozens of these things. And they just let them float in the stratosphere wherever they floated. And uh, one of them had got caught in a um, uh, a downdraft, some bad weather, and had been dragged along the ground uh, as it was forced down and pieces of it had come off. And then it, it broke away and took off and that was... and and never to be found again. Uh, That had been deployed from Los Alamos a few days before this all took place. The best evidence is that this was one of those balloons.
2: It's worth stopping here for a second just to mention that Americans have a long tradition of distrusting government. That's what led to the fight for independence. But that distrust takes a very different shape by this point in the 20th century. The military has expanded substantially after two world wars, and it has more high-stakes secrets to keep in this age of weapons of mass destruction. So here's the thing, Americans may have been wrong to suspect that the government was hiding alien debris, but they weren't wrong that the government was hiding something. Actually, it was hiding a lot of things. Radar projects, espionage projects, nuclear weapons projects. It was even hiding Nazi scientists. When Werner von Braun, the Nazi's chief rocket scientist, left Germany in 1945, this is the America he arrived in. A country that wasn't physically pockmarked the way that Europe had been from World War II, but that was scarred and scared in its own way. In order to sneak out of Germany at the end of the war, von Braun had made a secret arrangement to help the US Army build up its weapons. And so there was a covert operation that moved him and about a hundred other Nazi scientists to Fort Bliss, which is a massive army base that straddles Texas and New Mexico. These German engineers left behind the Bavarian Alps and found themselves in wide open stretches of desert just a few hours from Roswell. The official plan had been that all these scientists, including von Braun, were going to spend six months in the Southwest. They were gonna show the army their secrets for how to build ballistic missiles like they had made in Germany, and then they were all going to return to Europe and the American public would never know. But that didn't happen.
4: Well, it, it evolved pretty quickly that they stayed on.
2: This is von Braun biographer, Mike Newfeld,
4: And notably, one of the main reasons for keeping them was to keep them away from the Soviets. If you, if you said, OK, we learned everything we want from you, you can go back to West Germany, they could just cross the border and go to the Soviet side looking for work. And so in the late 40s, it evolved into a program for permanently immigrating the Germans, uh, scientists, and engineers.
2: The FBI opened several investigations on von Braun to make sure that they could trust this guy to stay in America. His FBI file grew to be several hundred
4: pages thick. This is all classified, so none of this is in public.
2: But eventually the US government decided that von Braun's work was too valuable. He was also proving himself pretty committed to the American program.
0: Yes, yes.
2: This is archival audio from Werner von Braun.
0: I would say by and large, this whole V2 program in the United States was very gratifying for me
2: By 1948, Von Braun finished his promised work on recreating and testing V2 rockets for the US. In 1949, he became an American citizen. And then in 1950, he relocated to Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama, where he became the official technical director over all of the US Army's work on ballistic missiles. After years of hiding out in America, Von Braun was finally in a public position of power. He was somewhat ostracized and criticized for his Nazi past, but really not as much as you'd think. Slowly, he worked his way into the limelight and started looking for openings to push the dream that he had always been most interested in, launching rockets to space.
4: Von Braun was very much... Interested in selling the United States on space travel and pursuing his dream. But how would he do it? Now he had to figure out how to sell the public on rocketry. You know, obviously he was aware of the power of science fiction.
2: So he first tried to persuade the public by writing a sci-fi novel about space travel called The Mars Project. It wasn't very effective.
4: It was a lousy novel. It didn't get published. His real turning
2: point came at a science conference in San Antonio in 1951. So there is this man named Cornelius Ryan, who was a reporter for Collier's magazine. And Collier's was a really influential news magazine at the time, kind of like Life magazine or Time magazine. Ryan had an Irish brogue. He had a penchant for military history and cocktails, uh, but he had very little interest in space, which is why he was not all that excited to be sent down to San Antonio, Texas to cover some boring technical conference on aeronautics. Collier's Magazine sent Ryan and sent an artist named Chesley Bonestell, who had done the cover illustrations for a bunch of John Campbell's astounding science fiction magazines. And the two of these men, Ryan and Bonestell, were supposed to come back from the conference with something for Collier's Magazine about the future of space travel, because, you know, the public seemed to be developing this curiosity around it yawn you know according to cornelius ryan this wasn't going to be very interesting he sat through a bunch of talks they were all gibberish scientists were scribbling equations on chalkboards then werner von braun got up to the board the room started buzzing Chesley Bonestell leaned over to Cornelius Ryan and whispered, this guy is writing equations for how we could fly to outer space. Ryan still didn't really understand the excitement or the science of it, but that night at the hotel bar, Von Braun cornered Ryan. Von Braun recalled that the Irishman was sitting in this big leather chair, staring at the glass tumbler in his hand. And Von Braun said, let me explain this to you. That night, he drank with Ryan and he charmed him and he mapped out his whole vision for how space travel could be real. And, you know, for the reporter, Ryan, here was the head of the U.S. military's ballistic missile program telling him that it was important and possible to send humans to the moon and to Mars and to the stars. Ryan was hooked. He went back to Collier's Magazine offices and he proposed this entire series on the possibility of space travel. He also proposed that Von Braun would write some of the pieces. Chesley Bonestill ended up illustrating them with these wild planetary landscapes and shiny spaceships. And four months later, the first of this series of articles came out in Collier's magazine. It was called Man Will Conquer Space Soon, and the series ignited the public, including a man named Walt Disney He was building his Disneyland theme park, and he was having trouble thinking of what would be in a section of the park called Tomorrowland.
4: And one of Disney's key people said, well, there's all these magazine articles in Collier's about going into space. Maybe we should do something about space travel.
2: So Disney met with Von Braun, and by 1955, when Disneyland opened... One of its crown jewels was a ride called Rocket to the Moon. To help promote it, Disney also launched a TV program on space travel featuring none other than former Nazi, former SS officer, rocket engineer Werner von Braun.
1: And he had three episodes, three one-hour episodes, on how spaceflight is real, and we're going to do it. And he has Wernher von Braun as sort of the, the centerpiece.
0: Low-altitude flights would be made firing the small rocket motor in the fourth stage.
1: Who's standing there in his suit and tie with a slide rule pointing to graphics online about, about how this is going to be possible and what we're going to do.
0: The ship and its crew will be ready for man's first flight in space.
1: So they're really convincing the public that this is something that's happening and happening soon. And oh, by the way, what are we waiting for?
0: Let's look ahead a few years and see how this might be accomplished.
4: He's willing to put himself out there to sell it. The Army was willing to let him do that. They liked the fact that Finn Brown created all this favorable publicity for the Army. So space travel goes from a sort of crazy idea at the end of the war to by the middle 50s, in part because of von Braun's efforts, becomes more and more respectable as something that's actually going to happen soon, uh, not, not in some distant future.
2: Von Braun and the others like him who wanted to see space travel become real, they don't just want to get the general public excited about space, they want to influence policy decisions. They're also doing
3: lots of kind of traditional um, lobbying, if you will, um, and work actually on the actual space programs, but they
4: see the avenues with Disney or the Collier's uh,
2: Magazine series as a way to bring these visions to a really receptive audience. This is Margaret Weidekamp, a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. I don't know that
4: lawmakers were reading this and thinking that they were going to change their funding priorities, but it did definitely bolster the
2: cultural awareness, the broader awareness amongst taxpayers as well as lawmakers that this was something that was possible. Can you see what's happening here? There was this fusion in popular culture of science fiction and science reality. Real engineers like Von Braun were using entertainment platforms to pursue the goals of science fiction, while sci-fi writers for Astounding magazine like Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov were increasingly focusing on the hard science of rocketry. The lines we're blurring.
3: Robert Heinlein, uh, after the war, um, he, he becomes obsessed by rockets.
2: This is sci-fi expert Alec neville
3: A trip to the moon is almost like a benign use of the same technology that might also be used in a nuclear war. Here's Robert Heinlein.
0: We are also going on out to the stars.
2: He decided to write a series of young adult sci-fi books. And the first was Rocket Chip Galileo, about a moon landing.
3: And for him, you know, this is almost a form of propaganda for the sciences and for engineering. He really wants to encourage young people to become scientists. He picks what he thinks of as the most interesting or romantic plot imaginable, which is going to the moon. In
2: 1950, his book became a blockbuster film called Destination Moon that won an Academy Award. And get this. It was about wealthy entrepreneurs in the future who lease their technology to the U.S. government to fly humans to space.
0: The human race thrives on trouble. We're built for it. That's what we're good for.
2: Isaac Asimov himself started writing more and more nonfiction articles and books explaining science.
0: Uh, I have never been afflicted with false modesty or, or true modesty either for that matter.
2: But strangely... John Campbell and L. Ron Hubbard were living in this same environment, but they were pulled off in an entirely different direction. By about 1950, they started shifting their focus toward creating their own science, their own psychology. And people like Asimov and Heinlein got turned off from this pseudoscience and stopped working with Campbell.
3: Campbell, you know, really thinks that it's a race between psychology and the bomb. He feels that, you know, the next war, you know, might be the last war, and so the way to uh, prevent it is to know more about how human beings think and behave, so we can head off, you know, that kind of conflict. And, and so he becomes, you know, really obsessed by the idea of scientific psychology, that we need to have a science of the human mind to save us from the science of atomic physics. the control
2: That's how Campbell got entranced by L. Ron Hubbard's new creation, a mental therapy called Dianetics. It was supposed to rid the mind of harmful imagery, and it ultimately turned into the Church
3: of Scientology. Many of Hubbard's earliest followers were science fiction fans. I think Hubbard himself was not necessarily someone who loved science fiction personally, but, you know, he was willing to give his followers what they wanted. And that's kind of why you see this strain of space opera or science fiction in some of Scientology's doctrines.
2: Campbell loved this blend of science fiction and pseudoscience, and he got obsessed not just with Dianetics, but with theories of telepathy and ESP.
3: For the rest of his career, he continues to look for a breakthrough in psychology, but it's, it's driven ultimately by his fear about atomic war.
2: His turn toward Scientology and mental therapies distanced him from Asimov and other writers, and that distance would grow even wider by the 1960s, Campbell shifted toward writing essays defending segregation and bashing government health regulations. These views of his would dramatically and permanently sever his ties with almost all of the sci-fi community. The 1950s were a time of some of the darkest paranoia we've ever felt as a nation, maybe even as a species. And as the nuclear pressure mounted, it's what all these people did with that fear that set America on its next course. Campbell and Hubbard offered an escape, a way to hide from the horrors of the world by twisting the understanding of reality Other sci-fi figures like Heinlein and Asimov embraced the world's complexity, and they offered the public a vision of how to use technology for something better than war. And von Braun, well, he got to work on the actual rockets that would send humans to the moon. But he'd soon find the Soviets were already a step ahead. On the next episode of Moonrise,
4: Sergei Korolev
2: returns to our story and launches
4: Sputnik.
2: is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the great producer Bishop Sand, editor Dennis Funk, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, and director of audio Jess Stahl. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. You can subscribe to Moonrise on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. You can also find it on the Washington Post site at washingtonpost.com. Slash moonrise. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you would consider leaving a nice review on Apple. It really means a lot to us to know that you're out there and you're listening to this and liking it. Many thanks to the experts who appeared on this episode. Roger Launius, a former chief historian of NASA. Howard McCurdy, a professor of space policy at American University. Mike Newfeld, and Margaret Weidekamp. Who are both curators at the National Air and Space Museum, and Alec Nevila Lee, the author of Astounding. Archival recordings in this episode came from the Fan History Project at FANAC.org, from the 1955 TV program Man in Space, from Critical Past, from U.S. Federal Civil Defense Administration, From the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's collection, and from the Gun Center for the Study of Science Fiction at the University of Kansas. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned next week for Chapter 6.
0: и даже развить круговую скорость, так спутником жизни. Новое небесное тело, созданное руками и в небесных году.